Due to us recording at home this week, audio quality may dip at times. Thank you for your patience and for listening to Think Critical. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Think Critical Podcast Roundtable. This is our first Roundtable episode. Joining me today uh, is Greg Lung and Adam Schwalbe, my co-hosts. I'm Joshua Miller, your host, um, and we're going to be discussing a lot of the recent events which have been happening, cancel culture, Hong Kong, the second wave of coronavirus, you know, the, all the police reform and Black Lives Matter. And Biden becoming a protectionist because that's a thing that's happening now. Yay. The issue we need to open with, I think, first is the issue that's been going on the longest according to our media, which is obviously the issue of policing and police reform. Obviously, Black Lives Matter is having a huge effect on our nation. In terms of figuring out what to do about the problems that underlie the movement, you get a lot of, a lot of chatter from both sides. Um, you get a lot of radical solutions, a lot of apathy to any sort of solution, and there really isn't any sort of clear-cut scientific plan that's being thought of. Yeah, um, I'm going to have to agree with you on that one. And I think that that has to do with the emotion that's running through America right now. Um, To be honest, I think when people are thinking of what to do with this entire situation, they aren't trying to think logically. Um, A lot of people, especially the protesters, um, are focused on their anger and their pent-up frustration because they believe that this has been an issue in their communities that hasn't been rectified for decades. And... To a degree, they are correct, um, and that has led to you know these radical solutions like defunding the police, and obviously you're going to have an equal and opposite reaction to that action. So I'm going to go a step further, and I'm going to say it's just because of our political system. So the way our, our political system is set up, there's one party that totally opposes change and one party that is okay with rocking the boat slightly. But neither. But the big thing is neither party, and at least this is the way it is right now, neither party can agree on a concrete plan to increase equality in the, or increase equality, maybe break down some of the barriers that black people face, especially in terms of systematic and institutional racism. Um, and I, I'd blame that on the political system, just the way it's set up right now. Uh, I'm going to have to take a hard disagree here, Adam. I assume you're referring to the Democrats in this situation, you know, the uh, the Democrats. I assume you're referring to them as the ones who want to rock the boat slightly. I think that yes. a lot of Democrats want to rock the boat a lot. There are, you know, at least at least the, the loudest voices in the Democratic Party, and I'm pretty I'm pretty aware that the loudest voices, like the Justice Democrats, aren't really the majority. You know, the, the Democratic yes. Party at least is still pretty moderate. Thankfully, but I am aware that you know that as as these loud voices are have less influence. A lot of the discourse has been about changing things completely and in a very wrong manner because it's a it's a it's a populist manner which which people well, want to change the things. Dis- so the discourse is on changing things completely, but what's actually going to be done? You see, although the Democratic Party polls um, well with uh, people of color. Um, you still have to remember that a lot, a lot of the people, still a lot of the people that vote for the Democrats are 
you know, older white, white people. You know, you, who, who, okay, who are the people that are actually voting? That's a real question. So if you look at the voting demographics, that's mainly a lot of older white people. And so they're good. They're good. The ones can be split. And so the older white people that vote Democrat aren't necessarily going to want to see radical solutions. And I'm going to, I'm going to bet the Democrats know that. And, you know, to the extent which they change things, e- even though there's huge rhetoric going on, you know, defund the police, you know, stuff like that like just completely get rid of them you know there's a lot of rhetoric going on but what actually what i'm i'm really going to be interested to see what's actually going to be done and i'm going to bet you that that's it's not going to nearly nearly be as radical as the protesters make it out yeah but i think you also got to keep in mind that the joe biden is going to be you know is the democratic nominee right uh i think that's already yeah Yeah. i think it's pretty much already confirmed but joe biden i think you got to remember this was elected by elderly black people Amongst the in in the South and all across the country, it, Joe Biden is the chosen candidate of most of the African American community, and I think you'll notice that in the African American community, the the middle you know the, the middle aged and the elderly members of the community are actually probably more pro, uh, pro police than you would expect because a lot of them own assets and they and they and they own businesses and they and they care about the crime in their communities more so than the young people. Yes. Because obviously yes. the older people aren't committing any of the crime in communities, and they aren't the ones out on the streets tearing down statues or going to protest because they're elderly. Um, yes. Like for example, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago is actually very pro-police. She's an African-American woman, but she's older, so she she cares more about protecting black business. So I think there's this sort of divergence between younger black people who face a, face a different kind of racism, which is more about police-based violence and about – rhetoric-based violence than elderly black people who faced systematic racism and racism in terms of their their access to you know public spaces and there's this sort of divide between what people have experienced which causes this disconnect between what they want elderly black people want to have a chance to own their business and to have you know have a secure family which they wouldn't be able to have you know you know many years ago and younger black people want to have this sort of freedom which is this like post nuclear family sort of freedom, yeah. which is a bit more radical and is pretty and it's pretty radical comparative to what the rest of the country wants. While I think that maybe elderly black people and you know elderly um, and middle aged black people want something more in line with the, the rest of the desires of the country in terms of like their, their sort of dreams and hopes. Yeah. So I just want to I just want to put in a disclaimer just uh, and then Greg um, you can speak. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just disclaimer me and Josh. Me and Josh, who are speaking, are both white, and Greg is Asian, so we do not necessarily have like the ins- sort of the inside scoop on race. Like, we obviously cannot talk as intelligently about racism as a yeah. as a black person would, and we are we are very sorry that we don't uh, we don't have to, we don't have a black person here. We never try to speak for the people that are enduring those issues. We just love to discuss solutions and logic and pragmatism. Yes, yes. obviously we don't we don't intend to be racist, um, but if we happen to speak something that is racist don't cancel us at least i am totally willing to roll back on whatever pretty much whatever i say yeah so one um campaign that i really liked when i saw it and i actually saw it on josh josh's instagram story was campaign zero because i think that they have a pragmatic and logical solution that is feasible and will actually appease um most if not all sides of this debate um, even the people that want to defund the police, because in effect, it does defund the police, just not in the way that a lot of people expect, because 
a lot of the policy prescription is based upon ending broken windows policing and demilitarizing the police, which I think is a great cause because in the end, the police are over-policing a lot of victimless crimes such as um, drug use and possession that don't really affect any other people other than the perpetrator themselves, but can still result in long, life-changing prison sentences. And um, if you didn't know, I am for legalizing weed, so that does, um, that does change my perspective too. But the demilitarizing and the uh, end of broken windows policing will lower the police budget in effect, um, which will satisfy those people. And the standards that it um, places on violence will help all people and will set clear guidelines that police departments will have to follow. And, and it, leaves, um, it leaves accountability um, open, which is extremely good since there's been a lot of debate among qualified immunity. And I think Campaign Zero calls for reform to that. I don't quite recall it. Okay, just just for just for people uh, like, like myself who have never heard of Campaign Zero here, I just have it. I just have the list of the the ten things, the ten reforms that it wants to do. So the first is uh, end broken windows policing. So uh, that is to demil uh, decriminalize crimes that don't threaten public safety. Uh, and profiling and stop and frisk policies and establish alternative approaches to mental health crises, community oversight, uh, establish effective civilian oversight structures and remove barriers to report police misconduct, limit use of force, um, inv uh, independent investigations and prosecutions, uh, lower the standard of proof in civil rights cases against police. Um, that's just uh, part of that. A community representation uh, f uh, that that is take draw police officers from the manpower pools of the neighborhoods which they are policing. Uh, film the police so body cameras. Uh, training so that's obvious. Uh, end policing for profit. Um, so end uh, quotas fines and fees, uh, especially for lower income people. Uh, demilitarization. Uh, Obviously, it's very, very important. And uh, fair police contracts. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the information that Adam is getting is from Campaign Zero's website. Uh, this is quoted from Wikipedia. Oh, from Wikipedia, okay. But feel free to check out Campaign Zero's website because they offer more in-depth in -depth explanations than, than uh, we could provide on this. That is uh, joincampaignzero.org. Something which I really appreciate about Campaign Zero is that they they use the words peeling and policing in some of their text, which is – so if you don't know what peeling and policing is, it's the standard which the UK and Australia have and New Zealand have. And they're probably the most successful police forces on the planet because peeling and policing, it, it, the whole standard is not about – necessarily the procedural justice or the arresting the criminals and getting the results of uh, X amount of arrested criminals. It's all about police-community relations, so about how much can the police serve the community? How well is the community doing? Um, and how well, do, uh, how well do the police and the community work together, and how good are their relations? Because the whole, the whole, you know, the whole idea you know, behind police, obviously, is to serve, to serve the community, and if the police aren't serving, then it's not good. Um, and it's, it violates the Pelian principle. Now, so I've, and I think one of the main issues in America is that because police have all these set of standards to what you know the amount of people they have to arrest, they end up becoming some sort of occupying force, and they become some sort of enemy in American neighborhoods. And 
I think that um, communal policing is a huge part of whatever reforms that Congress is going to institute because communal policing has shown results in America, not just in other countries. When you look at the city of Camden, um, they completely disbanded their police department and crime skyrocketed, and they learned their lesson in terms of policing, and when they reinstituted it, I'm pretty sure what they did is they had new police officers um, travel through the neighborhoods um, where they were policing and actually interact with the with the citizens um, in just a in just as equals instead of as a as you said occupying force and what that allows is to for the police uh, for the policemen and the poli- people that are being policed to see each other as human. And um, I think that just adds a level of mutual respect, um, which can break down barriers that lead to violence. Because as we've seen, a lot of the police violence that comes in America has come from extremely high charge situations where the police acts on a knee jerk um, against someone that they don't really know. And communal policing can stop that. And I spoke on Camden having results with this kind of policing and crime has dropped 48% since they've instituted um, those reforms. Also for communal policing, I think defending the community is not a big aspect to it because uh, when you have an area full of crime and you you get businesses that get robbed and people get murdered and the police spend all their effort – on investigating drug crimes and looking at the people's cars and you know and t- arresting people for fraud, then and stop and frisking. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, the, and the, the community ends up suffering horribly because obviously, yeah. um, because obviously none of their issues are getting solved, and the police are spending all their time futzing around. Yeah, and let's um, be honest, the police are going to be more incentivized to defend people that they actually care about, that they've interacted well yeah. with, and that they know. But also, like, but also, these communities, these African American communities, will suffer when the police spend all their time going after drug crimes because they're mandated to. Instead of invest, I see there's those statistics that so so many of these you know business robberies in in poor communities don't get investigated. But when you when the police spend their time protecting businesses and protecting homes instead of arresting people for drug crimes and stopping innocent people and you know arresting people because their taillight is out, then the community gets richer because they're able to have you know more stable business. People are afraid of being killed. Yes. You know, people's houses aren't getting robbed, so the business grows more. Uh, so the you know the neighborhood grows more prosperous. The police and the community have a better relationship. Uh, people and the police and the and the people aren't shooting at each other, and it, it's just it's a better result for everybody when people when, when the police address the issues in the neighborhood instead of trying to just cut down on the raw crime nowhere itself. Yeah, and not to go off on a tangent, but this will also help in if we end broken windows policing and we legalize marijuana then that will have a big effect in terms of lowering the prison population because obviously America has the world's largest prison population by far and a good portion of those are Afri- African Americans. So if we, st- if we stop African American people from going to prison for nonviolent drug crimes that really don't reflect their true character, um, it will allow the community to, to become even more prosperous because people aren't having their lives put on hold by going to prison for so long. And I think that's I think that's very obvious, and it's just something that we really need to institute, because going to um, when people go to prison, it, it has an extreme negative effect on not only them but their families, 
and um, also the jobs that they lose and don't have an opportunity for. And obviously, that means those employers and those com those communities won't have as many people that they can hire, so they're more incentivized to leave, which leads to the cycle of poverty that we um, we know today. Okay, so I, I have three things to add. So first is uh, for-profit prisons. Um, if I'm not wrong, the one of the reasons the prison population is so high is because for-profit prisons incentivize and put money in the pockets of judges to send more people to prison. So, for example, there was a, a case in Pennsylvania, I believe, in uh, 2012 or 2013, uh, maybe 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 earlier, of a uh, judge who was being paid um, very handsomely by the local for-profit prison to just throw kids in prison. So, essentially, subverting justice to put more money into the private. So I think that one step of the process, at least for larger criminal justice reform, is definitely to public, um, yeah. make prisons more public. Secondly, uh, I totally agree with you, um, legalizing marijuana um, and um, just, that, just how that would reduce the prison populations and um, allocate police resources more efficiently. Um, and the third is, and one interesting proposal that I just thought of was a police police conscription. So essentially, um, a certain number of people from the community would be get conscripted to join the police for, I don't know, maybe two years. Uh, essentially, what that would do is it would make, so p the police w would be stakeholders in the community. So the police would get drawn directly from the pool of people who have a vested interest in the community. And therefore, they would be, you know, more likely, they would be more incentivized to, uh, to, do policing methods that were helpful instead of harmful to the community. What, what, what do you guys think of that? Although I think I think that it violates principles of liberty because, unlike in the situation of war where we might need conscription because to defend the nation and to make sure it doesn't you know the, what holds our society together doesn't get torn down. Um, I think when you're, when you're constricting people for a community, A, I don't think people who are going to be becoming police will be too happy about that. I don't think they're going to be performing very well when they don't have the when – they're, when they're getting their entire life put on hold to be conscripted into the local police force. And I think too because that also will just sort of what, – what happens if somebody with a bright career – in those in one of those areas gets conscripted. It's it's not good. I I just I much rather just see it that instead you have a quota on the amount of people from the area who who get put into the police force in that area rather than a conscription because I think that it, choice is you know is one of the, the things which is you know most great about our society and maximizing choice um, is should be an objective of the government because it max choice is liberty and liberty is choice. Choice is liberty. Liberty is choice. Adam, I agree with your with the sentiments of having um, policemen be um, being stakeholders in the communities that they live in, but I would much rather have Josh's idea of the quotas um, with police officers from the specific neighborhoods that they're policing than having kind of a coercive factor in people's lives, as Josh said. And yeah, honestly, um, basically Josh kind of summed up the arguments that I would make um, perfectly. Um, I just don't believe in course of factors like that. And as you said, that could have very um as Josh said, that could have very destructive um, effects on people's lives if they were to be conscripted into the police force at a very inconvenient time in their lives. And to go back to something that you said earlier, um, I absolutely agree with you in terms of ending for-profit prisons. 
Um, if we think about this from an economics perspective, it's very hard to justify using the free market to imprison people um, because the product is not exactly a useful commodity. They have no incentive to treat they people have, well. Yeah, they have no incentive to be efficient or to lower costs. They only have incentive, well, not to lower costs, but they have no incentive to, um, to do things for the good of society. And I think we can see that in uh, places where we need mixed market factors like healthcare, um, where the product does where the product is either uncertain or is irregular in that it's not a um, it's not a commodity it's not a commodity that necessarily benefits society like in prisons. Um, additionally, I think that you know just going back to like sort of like like Lockean conception of rights, Locke says that the state exists to enforce the law of nature, to enforce people's natural rights, to make sure they're protected. So having private prisons in prison being part of the enforcement mechanism, having private prisons means that you're taking – and one of the core aspects of the state, which means – the core aspect of the state being to enforce you know, laws in order um, and, and putting that into private people's hands is giving them an abject power over people that they shouldn't have, that the state should only have. And because the and because people have no choice in whether they actually enter into this coercive relationship with the prison, with the private prison, then it, the relationship itself is deeply unjust and illegitimate. Yeah, and also and also the um the incentive for the prison is to imprison more people, not less. So the incentives that the prison that the prison gets the profit incentives, um, unlike most businesses. They're not beneficial to society. They're absolutely detrimental. Um, I'm going to move past prisons right now. Um, so, so I think uh, I think let's, let's let's talk about um, some of the rhetoric around defund police. But let's let's not spend too much time on this. Okay, so let's go to the rhetoric about defund police. Um, you'll see a lot of people saying defund police doesn't mean defund police or abolish police doesn't mean abolish police. That's a Mott Bailey. I think it's pretty obvious. It's a Mott Bailey ar- argument. Yeah, it's completely you see ridiculous. People, yeah, I think people who insist that you know defunding police just means reallocation of resources. It also means that you're taking away resources from a police force, which you're going to want to actually reinvest resources into because uh, you, you want to train officers better. And with abolishing police, when they say community officers, that's what a police officer is. Giving it something a different name it doesn't change it. Like you, you, you can call the military the community protection force, still fucking military. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it, yeah, it, and names don't matter. And I find that yeah. I see, I see a lot of posts on social media and people speaking and they say that the money that we take from the police we can reinvest into different parts of society that that will fix all the issues that the um that the police is uh that the police are causing but i find that this is just a tool of rhetoric they're not they're not actually advocating for any solutions using the money that's that's um taken from the police um they're kind of just advocating for throwing money at other problems using the money that they take from the police, which is just kind of, which is just kind of ridiculous, because um, it's just a complete oversimplification of the issues facing this country. And if it was as easy as just reallocating um, money from from one institution to the other, we would have solved those issues by now. So, 
I don't think that they're responsible for coming up with a plan and what to do with the money. So if, if you say, oh, defund the police, spend less money on the police, you're not responsible for deciding but where I that money will go away to. Money so that, that's just a good situation. I, I just wanted to add that. Situation because if we want to get our police officers to do better, we need to spend more money on their training. Police officers actually receive way too little training in this country and not enough is spent on their training. Uh, yeah. Oh, also, also about like, um, for example, because of uh, our legal code, police officers, police officers don't have a responsibility to protect people. We should, in a way, we should fix that. Is you instill a sense of responsibility into police officers. Let's move to uh, uh, Hong Kong right now. Oh, I have I have a lot to say about this. Okay. Yes. Uh, Hong Kong. That's okay. Let's think this. Let's all face it. China is going to be okay. the new threat. Wait, so first it's, of all, I want to point this out. The issue of Hong Kong has and always will be extremely personal to me because my mom immigrated from there when she was 17. Um, a lot of my extended family still lives there. So you will see me getting extremely passionate about this. Hong Kong is a sign that China is the new threat, I think. Yeah. For the in terms of in terms of having any sort of new Cold War. Our generation's Cold I, War. Yeah, our generation's Cold War. It's a struggle for democracy. There was a treaty which says that the people in Hong Kong get to have democracy and freedom of speech, and China is not respecting that. Yeah, until 2050, and China's been chipping away at the at the um, liberty that the people in Hong Kong have. Um for years now and i think this is an act of deliberate aggression by china they're not pushing a valid claim necessarily in fact they're doing the exact opposite by breaking a treaty that they signed yeah hong kongers don't want to go back to britain hong kongers want to be their own nation or they want to preserve the free principles which they have inherited it's it's not necessarily an, an issue of national determination when the exact point of land says it doesn't want to join the nation that's trying to annex it it's one thing if you know taiwan which is a relatively open and free nation became the true china again or, or took over the chinese mainland and then uh and then people started complaining that taiwan was trying to reabsorb hong kong but it's the, the issue at stake is not because not that the Hong Kongers don't want to be part of China. The issue at stake is that the Hong Kongers don't want to live under the Chinese system. Nobody should be living under an authoritarian system. It's a responsibility, at least in my opinion, and, I, and I'm very interventionist. It's a responsibility of a single person who lives on the earth to free others and to prevent uh, others from falling under the grip of the totalitarian rule. So I I personally do not agree with you on that. But that's probably a discussion for another yeah, time. Josh, since uh, Josh, the point, the point of, of this discussion is not – the purpose of this discussion is not to d determine whether the U.S. should invade other countries. Well, I don't think it should be – I don't think it's even about invasion. I think it's about personal opposition right now. Like if you're not, if you're not morally opposed to what China is attempting to do to democracy and free speech in Hong Kong, I don't really know what kind yeah. of person you are. Yeah. So I, I, I definitely am personally opposed to it. But I saw – headline a while ago on my just apple news feed about how china put in a law that basically if you go if so if you criticize china online so say i went to my twitter and i just typed in you know fuck the ccp i've done that before okay 
um, and like liberate Hong Kong or something, then if I go if if I go to China, then they will arrest me. Do you, do you guys have any any further updates on that? Okay, so I I believe I believe that that they have crossed the line there. Yeah, that, so that is trying to interfere in their own anything. subjects. Trying trying to trying to interfere with their own subjects is one thing that's deplorable. But when they try to extend their grip of totalitarian terror to the entire globe, that's a borderline violation of other nations' sovereigns. Yeah, yeah, it's disgusting. I, I and this is why I think China is going to be the next Cold War. Target. And this is this is so, why I have strayed farther and farther away from the from the Trump administration, especially on this issue. Because when I saw when I saw Mike Pompeo's interview, I forgot who it was with, but I was absolutely disgusted and troubled by what he was saying because he was basically saying that it was a foregone conclusion that Hong Kong was just going to become another communist city under China's hold, and I find it incredibly disappointing that the top diplomat in this nation is stating that there's nothing that we can do to preserve Hong Kong's amazing combination of liberty and markets. And it it just makes me realize that when Trump and his administration says that they want to be tough on China, they're not doing that because of some moral obliga- obligation they think they have. They're doing it for the votes. They did it in 2016 because they wanted to attract those Rust Belt voters whose whose jobs had been quote unquote been stolen by East Asian countries. They're they're not they're not doing it for the sake of liberty and freedom. They're doing it for votes, and it disgusts me. They're yeah, they're pandering to the racism of their base. Like I'm absolutely done with the Trump administration at this point. I like I can't stand it, and the way that Trump cozies up to to authoritarian leaders also. Yeah, it's disgusting. Uh, Especially it, um, like Kim Jong-un. And Xi Jinping. Yes, yeah, and if, if yes. we want to talk about Trump's meetings with Kim Jong-un, if, if, Trump wasn't, if Trump wasn't doing any more than simply posturing and pointing out how diplomatic he was, then he would have actually worked to sign some sort of agreement besides ending, besides quote-unquote ending the Korean War, which really doesn't do much in reality. So... Yeah, Trump's foreign policy, train wreck. I think it's because Trump is a mental train wreck. Well, I I don't believe that he ever expected to be president. I think that he just did his campaign as a big publicity stunt and then just got a bunch of attention yeah, you and can tell liked he doesn't it have and a continued plan for going. Okay, but also, uh, also going back to the... Uh, as China being the next Cold War thing, I think so. In terms of the uh, on the affirmative, what what confirms that being a thing is obviously the fact that China has no sign of stopping its aggression onto its neighbors and to its violation of the sovereignty of Hong Kong. I, I don't see a way China's stopping doing that, right? China's eco- but obviously China's yeah. growing economic power, it, its it, investment, yeah. in its military, um, it trying to get ahead technologically, especially using five G. With its dare I say shell companies like Huawei, its lack of respect for IP is also a thing. Yeah. Um, but I think on the other hand, some signs that China could slow, slow down China's population problem. The fact that its population its is economic really growth old, is also for, slowing. Yeah. Its economic its economic growth is slowed, and it's it has like it's sitting on six bubbles currently, which could burst at any time and send its economy spiraling. And also, 
the one of the big things about the Cold War is that America and Russia had no economic relations, but China and America are dependent economically. So maybe we won't have a Cold War because we're so dependent on trade from each other. I don't think that globalization is going to pull back. It's too po- it's too powerful. It's too productive of a yeah, force. It'll be more of an economic standoff than an ideal an ideological. Um, yeah, because especially because China's moving towards capitalism, and I don't think, and I think the Chinese have seen the virtue of of private enterprise, and 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 I don't think any, I don't think the average Chinese citizen is too enamored with crushing American dogs anymore. Yeah. They're too apathetic to it. I especially think, especially when the, especially when the um the values that have given them greater prosperity are values that they share with our country, obviously, and um I think that I think that citizens in China will grow less enamored with their with the ruling party. Um, once once they realize that um, China has been crushing human rights for decades now, because the younger generation growing up in China right now is undoubtedly um, more freedom loving than previous generations because of the economic conditions that they've grown up under. Um, when I went to Beijing and I had a guided tour there, um, my tour guide talked about the lack of development that there was in China as early as, say, 30 years ago and how quickly China has developed its cities. Yeah, and at 10% GDP growth for 35 years, which is insane. Albeit using uh, co- covert tactics, as we may call it. And I'm also pumping in so much investment, municipal investment into this economy. It, it, I think the, Chi- I figured it was like the Chinese municipal investment uh, budget is – or municipal investment – um, bubble is like worth half the economy, and the real estate bubbles worth the other half, which is it's mind boggling. For our real estate investment bubble was worth like eight percent of the economy. Yeah, so you can see you can see the potential economic doom that China's going towards once either which once any of their bubbles burst, it'll be absolutely disastrous <laughs> for them. If you want a quick explainer on this, look up a uh, t- uh, Tyler Cowen's from Marginal Revolution, Tyler Cowen's video on the rise and fall of China. Um, Tyler is a really smart dude. Um, he's one of our, he's he's one of our mind. Yeah, state capacity libertarianism is just a it's just a fun ideology because it, it makes the acknowledgments of what the state can do, but it also preserves this, uh, this you know this core idea that freedom is going to be the pr- most preferable option. Basically, you're Friedman instead of Mises. Yeah. What was nice about Friedman when you read Friedman is that Friedman was work, willing to work with all his ideological enemies to create solutions. Meanwhile, like Mises and Rothbard, like would throw a hissy fit. Yeah, they were they were it. aggressive libertarians, and they were also more extreme. Yeah, Mises called Friedman and Hayek socialist at some point. <laughs> that's that, that's hilarious. Yeah. Also, can we just talk about how how Trump has cozied up to pretty much every single authoritarian? Because I literally just searched up Trump praises Orban on Google. And I just found a million headlines about Trump praising "quote unquote" respected Hungary Prime Minister Orban during a visit. Yeah, Orban, Egypt's president, Putin, uh, Xi Jinping, Thailand's president, um, Kim Jong Un, uh, he, he, AMLO, which is Mexico's wannabe dictator, uh, Poland's di- Poland's half dictator, Erdogan, but Bolsonaro, which is you know one of the one of the worst guys on this planet right now, Duterte. Uh, He's he's cozied up to uh, other than basically Maduro. I don't know of a single dictator which he hasn't sort of praised. Well, that's that's because he's okay. So I'm just gonna add something. So first of all, I think that the reason he hasn't cozied up to Maduro is because he's seen as a socialist. <laughs> but also, um, I, I I'm I've no I've personally I I don't really have much wrong with 
taking a softer stance towards dictatorships. I'm more I'm more of a pass I'm definitely more of a pacifist just in my personal political beliefs, but I think that Trump is not by nearly a pacifist. Like he's insulted our allies. So I don't have a problem with him cozying up to or I guess it's not not cozying up to but entering better diplomatic relations with these leaders. But I have, I have a problem with him doing that and then also just dissing our allies, you know? So I, I think he needs to be consistent, whether he's going to be pacifist and just non-aggressive, which I personally believe is the better way, but that's besides the point, or whether he needs to be more aggressive. I, I think he, he really should just choose one, but he obviously hasn't. So. Well, I believe that, I believe that um, when we look at history, I'm just thinking of Reagan and the Soviet Union. Before you can, you have to think about um, Trump's motivations here for trying to cozy up to these authoritarians. Because what Reagan did in the 1980s, for instance, is in the early part of his presidency, he really toned up the rhetoric and the military spending on on the Soviet Union. But then in the later half of his pre- in the latter half of his presidency, he started um, entering more diplomatic talks with them. He um, and he um, he did a really good job of kind of breaking down Soviet authoritarianism, and obviously Gorbachev had a, had a big part to do with that. But when Trump cozies up, when Trump cozies up to his um to these authoritarians, and based on obviously his other actions, which I don't really have to list, you kind of question what his real motivations are when he does this. It's because it's because Trump is Trump's. I don't say he's small dicks, but. Trump is a wannabe authoritarian. Trump's a narcissist. He would love nothing more than to be the uh, the dictator of a small Caribbean island called Trumpistan. That that was his number one dream. Maybe if we could pool our money, you know. <laughs> Let's ask what to do with the Hong Kongers. Um, so so uh, the UK says it's going to let in a lot of the Hong Kongers. The US senators are trying to get let them in. I think, in, in the wise words of Jeremiah Johnson, let the goddamn Hong Kongers in. They're going to benefit us, and we're going to benefit them. It's a win-win. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you, and I think that I think that we need to try and bring China back to the negotiating table and make them try and sign some kind of treaty with. Most of the um, major, most of our major allies and us, that will kind of limit their aggression. But obviously, that's extremely hard to do at this point. But we need to get them back to the negotiating table for something. Yeah, we we need India and Australia on board of this because those are the two biggest enemies of China, other than us. I would consider even admitting Japan and Australia into NATO if it goes any farther. Well, Japan has the the no military, and thing. I think that we absolutely no, have. They're, they're reversing yeah. that. We absolutely have to threaten a measured retaliate. We have to um, threaten measured retaliatory retaliatory um, measures. Well, yeah. <laughs> Against China, obviously, um, obviously not uh, fire on fire and fury, <clears throat> Trump. But we we need to we need to show China that its aggression will no longer be tolerated, and that it's going to encounter heavy resistance whenever it tries to pull something like this. Yeah, and I, and we think we definitely need to start working cl- more closely with other people in the region, especially India, because if China 
Yeah, yeah, because because we're gonna need a a, a source of of place where we can invest more into in you know to, to produce our stuff and India is a ripe market and B because China has lots of population, Southeast Asia has a lot of population, and Southeast Asia and China are diametrically opposed. If we can supply the Southeast Asians and supply the Indians, then they they can't hold stand up to this because if, with American equipment and Southeast Asian manpower and location, the Chinese aren't aren't really gonna have any place to turn to, and it's not and I don't think the Russians are gonna necessarily ally with the Chinese. Because, because I think that I think that a lot of the reason that Southeast Southeast Asian countries even think about turning to China is there it's for economic reasons, and it's for the lack of support from the United yeah. States. Okay, Adam, uh, so what were you I, saying? I I think that overall, so you said that even if so, if we built up this alliance network, this uh, sort of Pacific NATO, if you will. Then um, we can we can definitely stand up to China and almost win and curb their aggression. And I actually very much disagree with that. So I think China is going to surpass the United States, um, and that's I, I think that's pretty much unavoidable. I mean, if you look at their population, it's enormous um, productivity, and I, I just think their growth rate. I, I, I don't see much, except for maybe the bubbles that you mentioned before. The growth rate is slow. The, the, the growth rate, their, their, their population is getting too old. It's for, it's about our age. It's 37. India's is 29. Nigeria is 19. If we invest in Africa and we invest in Southeast Asia, we invest in India, India, first of all, is going to surpass China even more. Yeah, if we I, get, I, get I a agree little bit with of you. A Indi- so, what I, okay, my point was that historically, China has been, China and India have been the top dogs but and i think that this sort of thing that started with the isolationism of the Qing and now has has ended with the um the, the expansion in capital capitalismization i guess if that's yeah. word like liberalization um, and li- yeah liberal, liberalization i think the period between those two events was just a blip i think china's going to return to being the top dog uh, one of the if not the top dog on, on, so, the, on the world stage so i think you got to remember that rome was more powerful than china for a while and, and america is a new variable and rome. population's not always going to be a determining factor so because if rome you have was, automation rome was basically all of europe minus the the northern bits yeah just, just we, to let you know we actually have a bigger landmass than rome we have a bigger landmass than rome yes but uh, percentage of the world population also, America's America's exhausted a lot of its natural resources. Like, also, I think I think we need to keep in mind is that I think you need to keep in mind that China is not trending towards becoming a more closed nation. It's it, it, maybe with with the stuff it's doing with the internet in Hong Kong that looks more authoritarian, but China's trending towards becoming more liberalized. It's trending towards becoming more democratized as as time will go on. And China when China has to confront its its problems with its population, its age its aging population and with its economy, it's gonna have to turn towards democratization. And I think that I think Kamal Sri Kumar put it best when he said that essentially that if you look at the grand scheme of things Every single nation went through a process from becoming some sort of like feudalist state to becoming a full capitalist state. China is just doing that process very quickly, so it looks very scary. But eventually, once it becomes this full capitalist state, they're going to enter the realm of, of world trade as just another nation. An extraordinarily powerful one, yes, but, but I don't think they're going to be diametrically opposed to the cause of freedom. They're just going to be another nation. See, yeah, because here's the thing. In the long run, right now, obviously, China is a very powerful adversary to it to us but i don't think any of you guys would be opposed to having china as a powerful um trade partner um instead of the instead of the authoritarian human rights abusing um aggressive imperialist 
almost you could say China. Again, I, I told you, <laughs> at least for me, I'm I'm a pacifist. I would love nothing better than to cozy up to China and maybe help help them liberalize yeah. a little bit. But I think that if we can if we can um form an international coalition, um of countries that that we can limit China's aggression, because whether China likes it or not, they still need they still need other countries to support them. And to be on board with them in order to in order to um, expand their interest outwards. Essentially, they can't fight the world. Yeah, well, they can't yeah. fight us, period. Our military is obviously better than them. And I think that most nations in the world would rather be on board of America than on board of China. If you go to Africa, they'd rather have an American company than a Chinese company there because the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. And if you go to India, they're, they're going to work. The, India is this untapped land. Well, and also because a lot of India hates China, so. So India hates China, and they're also democratic, so that make, puts, yeah. makes them a and natural also, ally. India to the is United the most States. base nation alive. They held an anti-TikTok march. That makes them base. And they have they have lots of tech they, startups they TikTok, that so. can actually rival <laughs> yeah. China. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about the UK. Um, uh, uh, let's talk about taking in the Hong Kongers and why that's good. Um, well, because so, I think. I think Hong Kongers are a very powerful force because they they lived under almost an ideal economic system. When you look at the economic freedom index, Hong Kong was it's it's number one. It's extremely up there. So when you when you um bring people in that lived under that, they will they will bring those ideas that made Hong Kong successful into America. Yeah, and there are a lot of there are a lot of educated high school workers in there, my uncle included, who's actually in the immigration process right now. And it would be great if he could come to this country. Um, but, yeah, but Hong Kong is chock full of people that will have a positive effect on our economy, if nothing else. Yeah, and, and Hong Kongers speak English, so they can transfer to the United States into the UK way better. But also, I want to talk a little bit more about, not just because they're skilled, but why immigration itself is good in these situations. UK and United States are suffering a problem of limited consumption and limited construction. So they need more construction workers, they need more consumption, and they need more and they need more production. So the Hong Kongers, being very industrious people, provide produ- production. More immigrants will provide more consumption. And as we've, as we've seen in so many studies, immigrants don't take jobs from, from native people. They actually complement the native people, but they don't take jobs. Ideally, you could have these Hong Kongers coming in, starting businesses, and obviously, if they start businesses, that's ab- that's absolutely huge because that that increases consumption even more than just having um, more consumers. Wages have grown so little since the since the crash, and part of the reason that is because we've we've had an economy that's been geared more towards bonds and more instead of towards consumption, it's been geared more towards interest. And you're really not going to have wages being increased when it's all about it's all about Fed popping up bonds instead of you know bank interest being propped up by the you know the reforms of the economy and the reforms of the real measure of the economy. But with more immigrants, yeah, more immigrants are going to make. Um, the, the economy more productive, it's going to help raise wages in the long term, uh, which is it, something we really need right now is higher wages. Okay, let's let's talk some cancel culture right now. 
Um, so the Harper's letter just happened. That was interesting. Uh, the reaction to it was very extreme for a letter complaining about extreme reactions. <laughs> uh, I guess it's sort of ironic. Um, you know, the, the, sending the letter is people as smart as Steve Pinker and Matt Iglesias, who got canceled for absolutely no reason. You know, Steve Pinker saying evolution could explain differences between humans is not a bad thing. It's quite accurate. And uh, Matt Iglesias having a take about Iran that's, you know, maybe we should intervene there is not also a fascist thing, unlike what the internet would say. But then again, on, on the letter, you also have J.K. Rowling, who's like, I'm going to write the Turf Manifesto right now, right here on Twitter, and I'm going to get very upset when you yell at me about it. Like, it's, it's, so the whole letter is it's sort of like a it's mixed bag of, 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 sci- of signatories and of effects. I think the worst part of, cul- of cancel culture is the concept of cultural appropriation. Like, we haven't had a diffusion of culture throughout history between people for thousands of years. It's literally a fundamental concept of how humans interact in my opinion and we have we have ridiculous people trying trying to trying to destroy this for for weird vague reasons and um i think that that just kind of plays towards the towards the internet and the spread of information and the ability to have things trending extremely quickly which leads to some kind of some element of mob rule where people people stop thinking logically and instead follow others, you end up having illogical um, illogical trends and um, and social. I don't know. I don't know how to ex- exactly to phase it, but yeah. I guess you well, could so almost say people social don't, norms. People don't at look this at point. the evidence, right? If somebody gets canceled online, people might just hop on the bandwagon and say, "Like I'm going to assume." People might just hop on the bandwagon and say, "I'm going to assume that that person's done something bad. They deserve to get canceled." Like, uh, yeah, like when Steve Pinker or Matt Iglesias got canceled, or when ContraPoints got canceled for no reason, people just said, "Oh, they're canceled," and everyone's like, "Yo, get them!" And, and there's no reason for that for them to have gotten yeah. canceled in situations. Like, but they like didn't. Jason the Derulo evidence. got canceled on. T- TikTok for dancing to a Mexican dance about cholos, but like he wasn't even doing anything extremely provocative or offensive. And like when you see these people getting canceled, they're like completely confused about what's happening to them because it's it's not an innocent action that had that had bad consequences. It's just an innocent action that didn't that doesn't affect anyone negatively. Yeah, and I guarantee most people didn't actually watch the video of him dancing. They probably just, they probably just heard from somebody he did something racist, and they made it sound like it worse than it is. Like that's one thing to take a look at some of these like old problematic essay they might have written and be like, "Yeah, don't do that, man. Let's, we're gonna call you out." For yeah, that. but ironically, say, ironically, we have politicians yeah. that have done that, and no one really calls them out on that. Yeah, but I think the one um, example that I can think Bernie of Sanders is Bernie Sanders. Yeah, exactly. Essay. Bernie's rape fan fiction, like that was that was um. An extremely I troubling hate US essay, politics. but um, no one, um, it didn't really affect him at all, and I don't, I don't expect this quote-unquote cancellation to affect, say, Jason Derulo extremely negatively. But like the fact that people are making these comments about other people is a problem in of itself. Well, so I think the big issue of cancellation is not the biggest figures who can support themselves. It's the it's the it's the little guys. If you do something, you say something that's somewhat off putting, and then people call your fucking em- a place of employment. People who don't even know you, then you get fired, and then you get fired, and it ruins your life. That's a serious downside of cancel culture. As much as, as much as it can also hold people accountable for being horrible people, like there's this guy who made the OK sign, and people called his fucking employer, 
said said that he was a white nationalist, and he got even fired, though there are numerous pictures of Colin life. Kaepernick making the same symbol, which makes things awkward. Yeah, and also, uh, or, or every single scuba diver makes that symbol because it says it literally means I'm okay because up, you know, yeah. a um, yeah, a thumbs up is up and thumbs down is yeah. Down. It's like it's like saying that break a leg is bigoted towards towards disabled people, like. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, one thing I would like to add to this conversation is a point that was brought up on an episode of the uh, New Liberal podcast. People are being canceled from within their own groups. So, for example, extremely progressive people are being canceled by extremely progressive people. So, Example, say I'm an anti-racism advocate, and I don't know, I send a badly, say, say I don't know, just pure hypothetically, I, I just got drunk, sent out, I don't know, what could be construed as a racist tweet, I'm going to be devoured by people from within my own group. So it's, it's not, so they're going after me, who made a drunken mistake, rather than someone like, I don't know, like Ben Shapiro, just, just an example. Um, I don't know, like Ben Shapiro or an alt-right commentator who is actually extremely racist. So, I said, yeah. Um, So, um, it's it's mostly prevalent on the left, but I take the the thing that I don't like most about cancel culture is that it's mostly, you mostly get canceled within your own social or within your own political or social groups. Yeah. Also, like, actually, I kind of remember this. A uh, bunch of Greifers tried to cancel Charlie Kirk because he wasn't a white nationalist. It's just, I don't like Charlie Kirk. That's still really stupid. You're trying to cancel a man because he's not a Nazi? Yeah, just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's not even, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, Charlie Kirk's, Charlie Kirk's head is so far up Trump's ass that he can almost see Kushner. But, like, they still, <laughs> they still tried to cancel him over not being a white nationalist. Yeah. That's the only time I've ever seen a right wing people cancel somebody. So it's almost like it's almost like um like when when Hitler canceled Strasser for not you know not being uh for not trying to completely privatize the economy. So obviously, so okay, wait. So you said that that's the only example of uh, right wing uh, canceling we've seen. So I'd argue that right wing cancellation goes on, except it's not necessarily very prevalent in social media spaces that you guys might be present in. So for example. Oh, actually, yes. yeah, actually, so, you know okay, it might so be, like... for example, if you if you don't like Trump, it's not that you're necessarily like they say, "Oh, you're canceled." Oh yeah, but... you're called a rhino. You're called like a Republican in name only, and they and they could yeah, cast yeah. you out of the party. Exactly. And so, say I don't know, a member of Congress votes against something that Trump wants, like that they're, they're going to be cast out. Yeah, they're they're not necessarily going to be, you know, tr- treated well. Say the t- say the least, but within their own party. By the way, Mitt Romney, if you need help, blink twice. We will come and save you. If you if you, if you need help, wink with both eyes. Yeah, honestly, I think I don't I don't think it matters what he says. I think Mitt Romney needs saving regardless. Mitt, okay, so in terms of uh, uh, nominees to GOP twenty twenty four, I think uh, uh, I think we all agree Mitt Romney, uh, Hogan, or uh, John McCain's ghost uh, put inside of a, a carbon fiber body and fueled only by the rage of Bill Crystal and Rick Wilson. Three prime candidates. Yeah, I'd we've got, like, one is that, and then two is, like, Nikki Haley, and then we've got, like, 198 is, like, that pencil that's sitting in the cup next to me, and then 199 is Josh Hawley. 
Josh Hawley is, protect- is a protectionist scumbag. I will send you a threatening email, and you will yeah, not soon. I think I think all three of us are with um with Woj on this one. <laughs> he 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 basically, even though it wasn't necessarily proper for him to say that, he basically said what everyone has wanted to say for months now. Okay, so I want I want to just wrap up uh, cancel culture by talking about maybe some some sort of a uh, positive idea of cancel culture that. The paradox of tolerance, you know, well, obviously a concept created by Karl Popper, some of my favorite philosophers, but the idea behind the paradox of tolerance is that you don't tolerate intolerance within your society. Especially and so maybe threatens the um, the concept of tolerance. Yeah, it's tolerant. Yeah. So so maybe that kind of makes that, that what cancel culture is is the it's sort of a democratization of that policy or where the where the where the government has no right maybe to cancel somebody for saying something problematic because obviously that's not exactly extreme instead it's it's community it's sort of an effect of community self-policing and if communities sort of using that principle to the extreme or saying that any sort of discourse against our community values will destroy our community so it's a it's it's so it's that sort of idea brought into full force, not really in the way which which um, you know Dr. Popper probably intended. Yeah, yeah, I agree with the idea of the paradox of um, of tolerance, and and I agree with everything that Popper says completely. But in practice, it turns into what's happening now with cancel culture, which I believe is undeniably a negative force in today's society. Because obviously, Popper didn't account for the. Um, the spread of information, crazy populists like Trump and other factors that leaded that led to to cancel culture. So, um, I think that under different circumstances, a cancel culture like entity in society would have been a good thing, where you have people holding each other accountable, but instead of instead of basically denying each other humanity and ignoring logic it would be people having discourse and trying to educate each other uh, actually uh, actually this is kind of ironic that we're talking about accountability right now because uh i think contrapoints to do video is supposed to be about accountability and as much as i'm very much a milton freeman stan i also really like contrapoints because except for you know the economics videos please stop ever talking about economics content nuke but uh but but anyway, so I know she's making a video on accountability right now, and I remember you know she you know she kind of put out like a Twitter questionnaire like you know what's it to you? And what I said really is the idea behind accountability is not that you yell at somebody for things that are problematic. Is that you you take when somebody says something which is off putting, you take a look at their idea, take a look at their line of reasoning, and if it's a problematic line of reasoning, it's something which is altogether evil and unsettling, um, and altogether you know. If it's a bad line of reasoning, it's a poor line of reasoning. That what you do is is you sit the person down and you explain to it why they're bad, and you and you basically take steps to make sure that they can't sort of spread this sort of hate anywhere else. But it's not necessarily yelling at them entirely so much as it's dismissing the claim. If you don't dismiss the claim of the person, then you've lost the moral yeah. battle. Also, that may have, also that may have been a teaser content nuke. Um, everything wrong with capitalism may be coming to a computer near you um, soon, so stay tuned for that. Just maybe, maybe not. Yeah, I agree with what ContraPoints says here. It's just, of course, a matter of what people deem to be a flawed and um, morally inept line of reasoning.
Alright, so we're going into Biden being a productionist. Yeah, this is this is very upsetting to me because I the number one reason why I hate Trump, other than the fact that he does no respect for law and order, despite him tweeting law and order ten thousand yeah. times. Can we just have uh, that tweet as the thumbnail for this for this, honestly? But anyway, um Biden has seemed to have sort of outflanked Trump on this, that Biden's gonna steal the Rust vote by saying well, we're going to buy more American products. We're going to put some tariffs up. We're going to take a look at our trade deals again. We're going to you know, boost our industry via industrial policy. And that's very upsetting because as a globalist and a, yeah, an anti-protectionist, really, it's, it's, it really you know, the whole reason why you should be opposed to Trump as an economist is because he's protectionist. And Biden's sort of losing that sort of legitimacy. Yeah. I don't think that Biden's going to – yeah, I don't, I don't think that Biden's going to – um, actually implement a lot of these policies. I, I, I mean, I'm confident that Biden will rejoin TPP, which is the number one thing I want to do is rejoin TPP. It's, it's, it helps us fight China, and it helps us get richer at the same time. But I think that it's very interesting to show that the, there's sort of a kickback effect of globalization that's really happening for COVID-19 and from people losing their factory jobs. Now, I, I think globalization is going to be permanent. There's, it's too powerful. It's too good. So I think that unlike what Biden or Trump would be saying, the way we truly build our economy is we bring in more immigrants to boost consumption and production. We open up trade so we can start to dominate the global sphere and take advantage of the booming economy, which will happen post-COVID-19. I think we deal with the crisis more effectively. We lock down more. And I think that we, we end the expansionary policy of the Fed and we allow um, the fundamentals of the economy to realign um, to be to their true nature, which is the nature of growth instead of the nature of bond-based growth, the nature of true, the, the nature of true growth instead of monetary-based yeah. growth. In case you didn't realize, Josh is um, re- referring mostly to quantitative easing and other policies like that that the Fed yeah. instituted. Bernanke was right to institute it in 2008, but it's gone on for too long. I don't think it's right in this situation. Mingle's right in the housing yeah, crisis. Yeah, it's usually but it's not, not a right good thing right when a short-term solution is, um, yeah, mid-long-term. like Hungary. Yeah, the stimulus, for example, should not be long-term. You, they should have designed a stimulus that was long-term, but we can't just continue to to increase the amount of money that's being pumped into the economy as yeah, time goes a, on. We a, should have started with stronger stimulus. It's almost a de facto UBI slash quantitative easing yeah. plan. That has no plan to sustain it, so it's pretty terrible idea. Yeah, no, me, me, Greg, and Adam were all pro UBI, but I think UBI is the um, number one most based policy. Yeah, UBI is basically the 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 cure to any ill in capitalism, or at least most of the ills in capitalism. Um, But I think that. Right, right now, the way we had our stimulus going, where we ha- gave half of it to corporations, I think it was a bad idea. Even if they were in loans, we should have, from the beginning, been giving all that money as a UBI to people. But now that we've had a short UBI, and as things are starting to get a little bit better, when we bring that back to a, well, we try and increase it again, and this creates some, uh, a, you know, a, a spending spiral that doesn't yeah. work. Um, Basically, and I think also. Like, let's, let's let's talk about the um. The, the I second just wanted wave. to go back to Biden first, but basically. Biden um, turning up the protectionist rhetoric isn't as um, isn't as off-putting to me as it might be to you, Josh, because at this point, in terms of our president, I don't see how we could get any worse on protectionism unless 
Trump appoints Josh Hawley yeah, to his cabinet, and then the rest of his cabinet dies. He already has Pete Navarro and Wilbur Ross, who 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 have this insane idea that if you limit immigration, jobs will come back. They're not going to come back. The jobs will not come back yeah. if you limit immigration. Because because the the fact the fact of the matter is that the the landscape of jobs in our country right now is changing. So you're not you're not just going to like that's an element of um. That's an element of structural unemployment that you have. You're not going to change the economy back into what it was before. That's just simply unrealistic. And also, Trump promised that, and that shows that shows either Trump's Trump's some um, two faced rhetoric or his lack of understanding of the economy. You pick whichever one is worse. I don't know. Yeah, but basically, Biden turning protectionist isn't as off-putting to me because we can we couldn't really get worse on protectionism than than what we have right now. Yeah, but my, my one just hope is that my one hope is that he pulls an Obama or a Clinton and he goes back to being a centrist once he gets elected because Obama and Clinton had really good fiscal policy because they are both Chicago school guys. Um, especially because Clinton knew that even though he ran pretty left, he couldn't mess with the success of, of the Reagan Revolution, and so that's why he was a globalist and he cut regulations which were unnecessary. And Obama kept running on being a pretty left platform. When Obama got into office. He, he realized that, that we needed a, a set of policies that put us more in tune with the realities of the global economy. That's why accelerate, you know, the acceleration of globalization happened, but also um, a lot of the good stuff of globalization arrived in our country. We got more foreign goods, which is, of course, awesome. Taco trucks in every corner is a I great thing. I also hope thing. that if, if uh, Trump loses the election, he won't stay a powerful force in the Republican Party because that um, I think it's in everyone's best interest – that the Republican Party strays away from the populism that it is um, embracing right now and returns more to its old ways of fusionism, say, like Reagan, although not ideal. It's undoubtedly uh, better than – it's undoubtedly better yeah. than – I, I, I think fusionism is going to be dead. I think it's fusionism is dead. I think what you're going to see is something much like Ross Duhop proposed or – we might have a form of, of like, a less extreme form of neoconservatism, which is more a populist neoconservatism, or instead it's focused on the, the Republican Party is full of, um, it's going to be full of, and it, is, it deals with the Republican Party is full of uh, small government progressives. Yeah, I hope that, yeah, I hope that, um, that new voices like, say, Madison Cawthorn, who I hope to get on the podcast, so everyone at him on Twitter and tell, tell him to get on the podcast. But I hope that new, new voices like him can kind of move the Republican Party in a way that's um, beneficial to our nation's future. Um, I'm not necessarily advocating for the Republican Party to go one way or the other, just to just in general to move away from everything Trump has done. I think that if the if the Lincoln Project guys take over the Republican Party again, I'm going to register Republican. If if all the if all the Trumpies are gone, although there's always going to be an element of me that's going to be very very sickened by associating anything Republican. But then again, you know, Bill Crystal, the great and powerful Bill Crystal, the legend. He calls forth the powers of neoconservatism to smash dictators and to boost the economy. And that's why I love him. Yeah.
Yeah. So yeah, I think with coronavirus, we're, we're sort of either entering into a second wave or uh, like a continuation of the first wave. It's going to be really bad. Now, let's take a look at the economic side of this. Um, we can't continue to increase stimulus without ruining market fundamentals, but we also sort of need some sort of stimulus. I think the thing which we really need is a super quick end to coronavirus. I think we need a complete national lockdown. We need to reinstitute discipline amongst our population. We need to reinstitute discipline amongst our population. You know, back, if we were facing the Soviet Union right now, we would all be in our houses readying up because you know, and, and putting on masks because we had an enemy to fight against. But I think now we've sort of grown complacent. And we've, we don't understand that we, we sort of lost this idea that liberty requires personal well, discipline. Well, also because a lot okay, of so, Americans don't even understand that the enemy is actually an enemy. And that they don't... They, don't under, they, they somehow disagree with basic... Basic protections against this enemy, like and basic science. Yeah, it like it's literally it's literally like a soldier in the army disagreeing with carrying a gun onto the battlefield, in terms of the masks thing. Like it's 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 getting it's getting ridiculous that people are spreading the idea that masks somehow don't work. There's definitely an indelible correlation between not believing in science and being an authoritarian, and also mishandling coronavirus. You can see that both with Trump and with Bolnasro, Russia. You know, Hungary. So you want to talk about uh, Hungary? I don't know. I don't know much about. Um, I don't know much about Hungary's budding dictatorship, but so. I do know that Hungary has been getting increasingly authoritarian and has basically established one-man rule. Um, and um, that civil libertarians are up in arms, um, figuratively in Hungary. Um, so I was wondering if you guys could actually tell me about that, because I don't know that much about it. So, Yeah, so the rising authoritarianism in Hungary sort of came to a head with coronavirus. And um, essentially what they did was they used the crisis as a um, sort of a backdrop, um, sort of a justification, if you will, to, um, to seize more executive power. I listened to a very interesting uh, BBC interview where they... Um, established that the, 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 the powers that the executive, um, I, I'm not exactly sure what the executive is called, but the powers that the executive was gaining, the prime minister was gaining was, were not necessarily directly related to COVID. So we, we could safely throw this out as not, we could safely throw out the, their sort of faux, faux reasoning. I gotta say, looking at the variables, it does not look good because you've got a populist leader in a European country that has, um, historically gone through periods of um, ethnic nationalism and extreme authoritarianism yes that too and you've got a crisis that while it hasn't been manufactured it certainly has probably been um warped in order to serve some kind of um, narrative that this leader um orban has used to um take power and then uses the excuse that the the measure is only is only temporary well i mean that's what Emperor Palpatine said. No, I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> uh, also, additionally, I want to point out that um, uh, Treaty of Trianon, hundredth anniversary. So there's a lot of uh, resentment over Hungary sort of falling from grace as being one of the biggest countries in Europe to a small country. Because to be of, fair, that yeah. was mostly Austria. It was Austria's fault, but but Hungary. No, no, no. It did... was Aus- it was the Austrian Empire that became yeah. the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But yeah, but I was saying, but saying that the Treaty of Trianon, which which broke away Greater Hungary, it, it, it still wounded a lot of uh, Hungarians' minds. 
And also, I want to point out that uh, Fidesz, which is the uh, Orban's party, has been in power for 20 years. They've built up a base, and I don't think they can get, uh, they're going to get kicked out. Now, I want to contrast this to what's going on in Poland right now. As of recording this episode, Poland's in the middle of its presidential election, and Duda, who is the uh, populist authoritarian leader, um, well, the representative of the uh, populist authoritarian party, even though he's technically an independent, uh, is, might, is might be losing to the, um, uh, the, uh, the sort of globalist... Um, you know, left of center technocratic candidate. Yeah, it, Poland. Poland is going to go based because because uh, because I, I think that in Poland they switch political parties way up more, way more often, and they don't really have they didn't really have this history post Soviet era. Yeah, they, they didn't really have this established base because there's more there's more young people who are more into this sort of globalized thing, and and in Poland's uh, Poland and in, especially also. Poland mishandled COVID-19, which means that all the old people who would normally vote for the authoritarian, uh, you know, Catholic, you know, sort of nationalist party, they ended up, um, you know, getting adversely affected pretty badly. And that means that they're turning away from the parties like in the United States, which is why I think that Poland, you know, I think Poland sort of, you know, dance around with with uh, with, with nationalism and authoritarianism is going to be over because I, I don't think they had these sort of long term factors of party control and of, you know, uh, the handling of the coronavirus crisis that Hungary does have. So back to Orban, also another concerning factors. Orban's scapegoating of the media. If I quote his um his foreign minister, um I don't know how to pronounce the name, but he says there are many fake news and lies spread about Hungary based on this new law, referring to um Orban's seizure of power, and obviously he's he's scapegoating the media here for um to cover up his obvious um obvious power grab, and basically most of the country. Um, besides his base, doubts Orban's good faith in this uh, in this move, but um, I doubt that opposition forces in Hungary are going to be able to do much due to um, how powerful Orban's base is and how unified um, Orban's dare I say uh, um, cronies are in um, supporting him. I think that it's important to note that Hungary doesn't really have a democratic tradition, so I think one of the reasons why democracy survived and thrived in the United States is because basically from the moment the Jamestown and Plymouth settlers arrived, we had basically a democracy. Essentially, we had the House of Burgesses in Virginia, you know, we had the town meetings in New England. And especially for the beginning of our like modern, like European history, I'm, I'm not, I mean, you could, you could go back and say even the, like the Iroquois were, were, um, I'm not, I'm not going to count the Native American tribes, though. I'm just just for just for the sake of this. But essentially, the U.S. has so basically for its entire history been a very very democratic sort of more libertarian country, and I think that this makes people feel really proud of our democratic tradition. So if you were to say if Trump was to seize executive power in the United States, I think that there would be a lot a lot more backlash against that. Even from his base, maybe than if Hungary, which which maybe which I think only got a democratic government after the Soviet Union fell. So that's yeah. I think you know James Mattis had if Trump tried to abolish you know the uh, the power of the Constitution and seize power for himself, James Mattis was marched down with the Marines down Pennsylvania Avenue, arrest Trump, and throw him in the trash heap of history. Oh yeah. Also, um, also the more I read, the more concerned I get because. Um, 
the emergency measures allow um allow eight year prison sentences for anyone breaking quarantine, meaning that Orban and his allies can basically imprison anyone they want. Um, if they catch them doing the slightest transgression. And it also allows Orban the power to shut down media outlets that spread what is deemed fake news, which obviously, as we all know, is anything that could hurt Orban's efforts to consolidate power further. And Parliament can technically vote to end extra extra power, but, I mean, Orban's party has a two-thirds majority, so that's probably not happening. Yeah, they're probably all, they're all his cronies, so... Also, I, I think you also got to remember that the European Union has been very silent on this. The European Union needs to bring the hammer down Everyone on wannabe authoritarians. In your, yeah, but especially the European Union. The European Union could use Hungary trying to become a dictatorship as an excuse to federalize more, as an excuse to take a greater role in the continent. But instead, they're going to allow a potential ally of Russia to arise and potential authoritarian state arise because the Europeans can't put away their little minor squabbles and take a consistent foreign policy position. Oh, and Trump has praised... I totally oh, agree Trump with that. praised Orban repeatedly, so... In case he... <laughs> I think that... I, I totally agree with you, Josh, and that um, the EU needs to federalize. So I think European... So European history, obviously, is just racked with wars. You know, obviously, they came to a head in the First and Second World Wars, but even before that, you know, basically... There was there's always wars going on in European history, so I think that so obviously this stopped. Um, this is stopped now, but I think that if the European Union collapses, you know, economic interdependence, if that goes, then I, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. Maybe aside from the nuclear, the, the nuclear, you know, war being all destructive argument, I, I don't see why they wouldn't return to war. So I think one of the important things to prevent, you know, large scale wars from happening in Europe again is for the EU to federalize, for Europeans to put aside their differences and and realize that European, like, squabbles over who has Alsace-Lorraine, you know, I'm just using that as an example. Yeah. Um, it's been great doing this roundtable with you both. I had a great time discussing a lot of the issues that that we have to deal with in society today. And I definitely look forward to doing the next one. You'll hear more of me when I do my interviews with various experts. So I, I hope you guys had a great time listening. And this is my goodbye. See you guys next time on Think Critical, the podcast. Uh, yes, it's been a... It's been a Yes, this has been a very enlightening experience conversing with uh, Greg and Adam. Um, I hope you will listen to any of our episodes from Think Critical and stay tuned for my next interviews. Um, and remember, always use your brain. Thank you for listening to Think Critical.
credits to Kevin McLeod for the music used in the transitions in the episode.